So, Shell, you have uh, strong opinions about uh, psychotherapy. Yes, I think that's accurate. Uh, they're evolving opinions, if you will. I mean, my early training was uh, both psychodynamic and behavioral, cognitive behavioral. So I kind of got the best and the worst of both of those traditions. And uh, what I have become, I think, through the years is increase, increasingly uh, integrative, uh, which fits nicely into CEPI's kind of uh, agenda. Uh, and I guess if I had to be labeled, it would be in that constructivist camp. Uh, you know, I've so, always... So maybe for people who are not so familiar with the label, do you want to give a few words in layman's terms of what constructivist might mean? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I think of constructivism as not so much a theoretical orientation to psychotherapy, but a meta-theory, a more philosophical uh, holding position or meta-theory uh, that can incorporate many different techniques of therapy and many different organization or uh, theoretical orientations. Uh, it, it really comes out of uh, a uh, kind of a postmodern view that reality is created or uh, made rather than found. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I like the uh, Paul Watzlawick quote, which is uh, the belief that one's own view of reality is the only reality is the most dangerous of all delusions. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm very sensitive to how people, if you will, construct their own uh, view of the world. And uh, now there are a lot of therapies that, you know, will, will sign up to that. Uh, but uh, I found that I've taken it a little further than that. So I want to maybe stop you a little bit there to say, in a way to just recap, that um, in contrast to, say, uh, philosophies that there is a truth and the yes. truth is found and, uh, and, 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 and there's a single truth, uh, it really starts from the premise that reality is constructed. So there's more of that relativist approach. Uh, and paying attention to, in a way, how we construct our reality as opposed to trying to fit some predetermined notion of reality. I, that's, I think that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. that, that's exactly right. Uh, I, I remember many years ago, and I've been, uh, you know, I've been a therapist and a psychologist and so on for uh, several decades. Uh, but I, one of the uh, first things that kind of struck my fancy was Bandler and Grinder's early, uh, what's it called, the uh, Structure of Reality? No, that's not the name of it. Uh, uh, it. It was their first volume at any rate, and I don't know if you know Bandler and Grinder, but they were uh, regarded as the founders of what's called neurolinguistic mm -hmm. uh, training, uh, and uh, I'm not so much into that, per se, and Bandler and Grinder themselves have become kind of historical, uh, controversial historical characters. But uh, in this book, Structure of Magic, they set out on a, uh, a fairly uh, interesting enterprise, and that is that they noticed that there were many therapists from many, many different persuasions, and there were some that were masters in all of those persuasions, 
and they'd wondered what there is that they these people might have in common that account for their uh, effectiveness rather than the specific theoretical orientations that mm-hmm. they had. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, and they the book really sets up. They used uh, uh, Chomsky's transformational grammar as kind of a model for this, but to to boil it down. Uh, they were really suggesting that we all uh, have our own models or representations of reality that we carry around with us, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's our way of viewing the world and our place in the world. And uh, there's a difference between that model uh, and the representation and the world itself. Uh, it uh, our our view of ourselves and the world has constraints such as, you know, neurological constraints. We don't hear all the frequencies that our cat hears. Uh, it has social constraints like, uh, I think the Inuit people are famous from being able to differentiate many types of snow. Mm-hmm. Uh, in California, like I do, snow is, you know, there's one kind of snow. It's wet and cold and that's it. Uh, and then there are constraints based on people's own uh, learning histories, developmental histories. But their premise was that what all these master therapists seemed to do was, in one way or another, try to get to know what a client's model of reality is. That is, how do you think about things? How do you understand the world? How do you understand yourself? And then to challenge that model in the areas and domains in which that perspective led to a sense of powerlessness, uh, lack of uh, not only being empowered, but things are not good, uh, not uh, that, that didn't work for them in life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, and I think that that same frame is one that uh, is, uh, you know, it, it held in. I mean, I think it's a nice way of thinking about therapy overall. So let me let me maybe just again try to summarize what I'm hearing. That um, in a way, uh, what's important is not to confuse reality with the models we have of it. Yes. And um, the characteristics of the master therapist far from, in a way, feeling that their model is the only one or wanting to impose it on people, is actually having that sense of uh, wanting to pay attention to what the explicit or implicit model that the client has and helping the client understand the fault lines, you know, the area where this model is actually uh, leading the client to have a sense of powerlessness or stuckness. Yes. And, and in a way, help the client improve their own model of reality as opposed to imposing a model on them. It, uh, yes, I think that's exactly right. And so then the question for me has been, how do therapists do that? What is, what is the process for doing that? And it seems to me that the other influence that is underappreciated has to do with uh, physics, if you will. Because psychology is largely formed from and based on Newtonian mechanics, you know, sort of that billiard ball universe. And that's very different than a 20th century physics 
in terms of what's real and what's not real. Again, that kind of constructivist perspective. And so from the uh, a more uh, 20th century philosophical perspective, there's a distinction between things. And when I say things, I mean, you know, the furniture in the universe, things that operate perhaps a physical space and, and time. And, of course, there are some philosophers who are called radical constructivists who would say there's nothing out there at all. Uh, but for me, the important thing is there's a distinction between things and attributes about things. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the difference between things and attributes about things. So some, yes. you know, some examples of that. Okay. Uh, so, for example, if I have a chair, and we can all agree that this is something that occupies physical space, that there's something out there called a chair. Now, whether that chair is a comfortable chair, whether it's a useful chair, whether it's an expensive chair, whether it's a short chair or a tall chair, those are the attributes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Those are the uh, events, if you will, plus meaning about events. Or it's the story, which is a common you know, way of thinking about it from some people who are in more narrative schools and so on. It's, it's the event and the story about the event. Right, right. And so the event and the story about the event. And so in a way, let's kind of interface that with the notion of truth, you know, that uh, exists in and of itself or constructed truth. Or... Yes. Well, uh, what happens, I think, is you know, the way that we most of us experience life, and part of it is even linguistic, the way in which our language is based on a uh, on uh, kind of a, a more Newtonian uh, philosophy, uh, is that uh, the, the distinction between things and attributes of things collapse. That is, it looks to people as if the events themselves explain things. It's as if the events are real, the story is real, rather than the story being something we place on or attach to the event or the thing, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, so, you know, I can elaborate on that a little bit. So but, let, let's stay there a little bit. Like the, 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 there's, um, in a way, let's say the chair... Yes. Okay, so at some level, some people might argue that the chair doesn't have a reality either, but we're starting from the premise that actually we, we accept the reality of the chair. Right. Um, but as we go into attributes of the chair, a lot of that is going to have to do with our perceptions of the chair, our baggage about how we perceive the chair, and in a way the stories we kind of make up around the chair. That's and right. And so... Uh, often enough, what happens is that people tend to uh, end up being so fascinated by the stories that that becomes a focal point and that the stories uh, assume, uh, in a way, a higher importance and they're considered what is true, uh, as opposed to the chair itself. Yes. Uh, yeah, I would argue that uh, most patients who come into therapy, uh, that they then come in with their stories, if you will. They will say, for example, uh, I broke up with my girlfriend yesterday, and so 
I am uh, distraught. I am upset. I don't see a good future out there. And it is as if the events of the last few days explain their situation. And it's a very convincing story. And frankly, if you're a therapist and you're not empathic to that story in some way, uh, you're probably going to lose your patient. But it's a difference between being a, it's a convincing story and recognizing that it's a story and that it's not real in the sense of chair being real. Uh, that one necessarily has to be upset in that way when experiencing a separation, for example. Although there's a lot of social consensus about many of these stories that we have, so that most people would say, yes, it's not surprising this person is uh, distraught. So, but so, so in a sense, uh, here what we're talking about is there's a function to the story. Is uh, the story is in a way born of our innate desire to make sense of things, and so we try to figure out something that gives a possible explanation, um, and in a way to not stick with something that is unknowable or something that's hard to accept emotionally. And uh, then the, this rationalization takes on uh, the characteristics of fact. Yes. Yes, exactly. And it's, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the story of the three umpires, uh, but uh, it, it kind of captures this uh, so, uh, nice, let's, let's, you know, let's, the story of the three no, umpires? Go, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it's about three uh, umpires in baseball trying to describe how they call balls and strikes. And the first one says, it's easy. Uh, if it's a ball, I call it a ball. And if it's a strike, I call it a strike. And the other one, who's a little more sophisticated, says, uh, well, you know, if I see it as a ball, I call it a ball. And uh, if I see it as a strike, I call it a strike. And the third one says, no, you're both wrong. They ain't nothing till I call them. <laughs> Meaning, in the game of baseball, the umpire defines reality. Yeah. And you can argue all over the place if you're a batter, but if the umpire says it's a strike, it is in fact a strike. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it, it is again part of that how, uh, how we construct things. Uh, so I think that, uh, the... But you know, the interesting part though, uh, is, um, in the context of that story, uh, baseball is a game that can only function if it has rules. And um, the participants agree that one person has the power to define what is, and that's the umpire. So there is both a question of power, but also a question of agreement as to, you know, who has the power. So yes. in a way, it's very similar to, in a way, us as a society giving the power to the Supreme Court to define what is the law and what is not. Right. Or uh, patients giving the power to therapists and medical personnel to define the reality of their yes, lives. Yes, yes. So we're so we're in in the context what we're talking about. So we're in a context of power and agreements and negotiation, or uh, you know, so that kind of area. Well, and so for me then, uh, in terms of seeing clients. Uh, 
clients will have very different ways of framing the issues they want to discuss, their problems, if you will. Uh, for me, I'm always thinking about a kind of a universal goal about how to empower a client in those domains of their models of reality in which they experience themselves as stuck, disempowered, unhappy, uh, and so on. But I'm, I think that therapy takes place in the world of meaning-making. And to a large extent, uh, how we define meanings is related to well-being, which is a very different than the medical model, because from a medical model perspective, if you are a surgeon, you know, you are dealing with the body as meat. You are not dealing with the meaning-making enterprise and I think that the laws of physics, let's say, or the the, the uh, principles that govern how meanings change are quite different than how physical uh, events change so, with Newtonian so, mechanics. So, so let me maybe confuse the issues a little bit uh, uh-huh. by mixing the metaphors. Um, the surgeon... Uh, you know, deals with the meat, and so in a way deals with the chair. And uh, in therapy, we deal with the attributes, we deal with the stories that are told about the chair, we deal with the making sense of the chair, as opposed to the physicality of the chair. Yes, yes. And I think that what clients do when they come in is, they, of course, think of what they're experiencing or their problems as real, and I'm using that word, you know, with a capital R, real, kind of like chair is real. And uh, it, in many ways, uh, inhibits their ability to take different perspectives in appreciating their situation. And I think that the therapist is there in part to sort of facilitate that uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That process. And, and, you know, I'm very much with you, and that's where, in a way, I love the concept of Winnicott, the play and reality, uh, that in a way we do play therapy uh, with clients in the sense that we take seriously what people take for reality. Yes. But in some way, the taking it seriously is part of uh, what allows us to play with it, just the same way as you play with a kid. Uh, it's a way to manipulate and then transform uh, this experience by for by being in that zone of uh, play and reality. Yes, and I think we have to take our clients very seriously. Uh, you know, no matter what kind of your, uh, orientation you're coming from, uh, and uh, but a, you know, a good example of where a patient might. Uh, Take a concept. I mean, psychology is full of concepts. Uh, a good example is something like self-esteem. Well, from a reality perspective, there's no such thing as self-esteem. I mean, self-esteem is uh, this uh, conceptual uh, term. But it's interesting that when clients talk about self-esteem, they will say things like, well, you know, I can't possibly uh, go apply for a job 
because I don't have enough self-esteem. And you've got to fill me up with self-esteem first. Right. So so I can apply for a job. Right, right. Or fill me up with motivation. Give me motivation. Fill me up with motivation. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. Or give Where, me or, comp- yeah. I have to increase my dose of compassion or, you know. So, but so in a way, it's like, in a way, medieval thinking of the vices and the virtues who are personified. Yeah. Say that again, please. Like in the Middle Ages, they had these passion plays, you know, where they had the the vices and the virtues that were played by characters, you know. And so you had, uh, you know, patience and you had jealousy and you had, uh, you know, greed. and, And so they were characters. Well, you know, a good personal example of uh, of how uh, the, the interesting things that patients get into with with uh, seeing reality and having a particular piece of their models that constricts them has to do with the role of feelings and affect. So I remember many years ago going to this uh, outdoor workshop for. Uh, uh, psychotherapists, experienced psychotherapists, and one day consisted of all these outdoor ropes courses and things. Uh, if you're familiar with that, like yeah. zip lines and rappelling and one thing or another. And it happened to uh, come the morning after, this was in Southern California, but it came the morning after there had been a freak snowstorm. And we woke up to fog so thick uh, that, you know, I couldn't see beyond six or seven feet through this thick saw, uh, fog. And the task was that everybody was going to go one at a time on this zip line, grabbing a hold of this line and flying across a canyon with several hundred feet below. Well, at least you uh, don't see it. <laughs> well, yeah, I sort of helped it. You didn't see it. But, uh, and then you actually were sprung into it. So, like, you know, if you let go, you'd be like a sack of potatoes. You wouldn't fall. But nonetheless, most people were very frightened. And uh, I remember as you lined up to get roped into this harness, there was this very sweet young woman up there, and she said, how do you feel? And most people would say something like, scared shitless. And she would say, that's interesting, jump. <laughs> you know. And what you learned, of course, was how you felt about it was interesting and not insignificant, but it didn't really control whether you jumped or not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In the same way that a client will say, you know, I've had people say, well, I'd love to move to California, but, you know, my mother's sick and she wouldn't like it. Now, that's their model of reality. You don't leave a sick mother or a mother who doesn't want you to move. Whereas I think that what the, uh, therapists often do is they play with that. They, in fact, say, well, would she have a heart attack? Or, uh, you know, what would you think would happen if you went anyway? And in a, in a way to kind of challenge the reality that the client has constructed uh, and ex- is experienced as very, very real. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then... See, I think that gets into the this um, this dance, if you will, that uh, here you have a therapist who has his or her own models of reality. I mean, we can't dispense with those either. And the client has his or her own models of reality. 
And you're trying to engage and be effective with somebody for whom, at least in so, some domains, they experience themselves as disempowered or less than whole. So, so I want to want to highlight something there. That yeah. In a way, what's happening there is um, there is an ambiguity and even some kind of a, a dishonesty, because in a way, uh, covertly or implicitly, we're trying to undermine the person's model. And not fully owning, you know, my model is better than yours, yours is shit. Uh, and there is an argument at the level of the model. And, and so, in a way, one is the argument at the level of the model is probably not going to work because the person has, you know, a very strong model just the same way we have ours. But yeah. two, maybe there is also that, that, uh, you know, ambiguity, that kind of, um, uh, you know, under the uh, radar type of attack, uh, which is very different from what you were describing in the zip line. The woman is just saying, oh, very interesting. And then, in a way, what you think has nothing to do with reality and separate feelings from action. Yes. Yes. And, uh, uh, no, I think you're right. There, there is the difference between the therapist model and the client's model. And in fact, if you as a therapist share some of the same aspects of the model within that domain, I think we call that counter-transference and you're mm-hmm. not actually very helpful. I mean, if you also, if you just came out of a bad divorce and you think men are no damn good, and that's exactly what your client is experiencing, chances are it's going to be very difficult for you to get the client thinking about different ways of viewing this and maybe some men are worth, you know, contacting and, uh, and, and so on. So, you know, therapists can also fall into that kind of trap. Uh, and I think when I think of challenging the model, I don't mean necessarily shaking the client and saying, listen, you're not thinking about this very well, because I think that every theoretical technique or orientation has their own way of doing that. I mean, Rogerians who do it through listening and having the client uh, talk more and more about their own ways of seeing things find themselves questioning themselves. Uh, behavior therapists who assign assignments for people to go out and check and find out that things aren't so bad when they try them do that. Uh, Gestalt therapists who put and use an empty chair and have them look at two different sides of themselves and test part of what they're thinking and feeling. And it goes on and on. I mean, mm-hmm. you can do it get the same place with many different approaches. But I think fundamentally that's kind of what you're doing. And it becomes, if you will, uh, that, uh, you know, this, this dance between the therapist and the client where the how the advantage that the therapist has is that... If the client, if the therapist is not attached to one particular outcome or way of seeing things, then the client, the therapist can keep making attributions indefinitely, can keep checking it indefinitely, can keep encouraging looking at things from multiple perspectives or experimenting indefinitely. And that's the power advantage that the therapist has in that system, if you will. Yeah, yeah. So, in a way, what's happening is that um, the what we're doing is um, 
treating the client as a, an experimental scientist and um, looking at their concept, their model, as a working hypothesis as opposed to a dogma. Yeah. And, uh, you know, through experience uh, to enrich their model. Yeah. And obviously, if we have our own dogma and we're attached to uh, a certain view, uh, we're not going to have the flexibility to actually truly help the client, you know, build a model, but it's going to be a bit of a warped um, process. Yes, yes. No, I, I think that's a very good way of putting it. Uh, and, you know, and I think further, it's not uh, in that Newtonian way, it is not so linear and predictable. Uh, and that's where I think that that destabilizing dance is one in which the therapist might intervene but here's where it gets into the, the parallel for me, and I'm not a physicist or a, uh, a totally understand at that uh, level, but I think of uh, Prigogine's work with uh, dissipative structures or open-ended, non-linear kinds of systems, because I think the relationship between the therapist and the client is a form of open system. So let, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit more about that. That's a yeah. non-linear open system. Well, I think that uh, it's a uh, there's a relationship between the client and the therapist that is influenced not only by what goes on in the room and how they have defined what they're going to choose to discuss and how they co they kind of co co create the problem, if you will. They're, I don't think the problem's real, but we're going to co create it for the purposes of the therapy. But the client is also exposed to other influences, and the therapist is too. So what apparently happens according to, uh, and here I'm thinking of Prigogine, who won a Nobel Prize for his work on dealing with uh, these nonlinear systems. And what he argues is that when you perturb a system, it gets, uh, you know, discombobulated, uh, mm-hmm. it, it's thrown up. But how it comes back and reconfigures itself is, to a large extent, unpredictable. Whether that new form is, you know, how different it is and whether it is, quote, better. And here I mean better by, for me, that you, you look for an outcome in therapy when a client says, ah, that feels good. Now my life makes sense. I feel like I have more options. I feel like I have more power. Everything's right in the universe. But I can't guarantee through any particular intervention if that's going to happen when that system gets perturbed. And the advantage then of the therapist is he or she can keep going rather indefinitely until something like that starts to happen where if things reconfigure or land or make sense in a way that actually seems like uh, progress. And, I, and I'm always uh, sort of thrown for a loop that typically if I see somebody for a period of time and we terminate therapy and, uh, you know, assuming that it's been a good experience for them, where I will say to my client, well, so what was what made a difference to you? What helped? And sometimes they'll point at the damnedest thing. 
you know, they'll say, well, I remember that session a month ago when you said this. And it just made a profound difference for me. Right. And I will hardly remember what I said. Now, it, it wasn't programmed in that way. Yep. It really came out of the therapist creatively sort of drawing upon how to intervene empathically and uh, through understanding the client's model and trying to uh, challenge it in some way. Yeah, so, so in a way, uh, it's a sense that uh, if we get too caught up in having a plan for uh, here's how we're going to change the model or get the client to understand this or that, um, you know, we're in some way in fantasy that in a way what we know we can deliver is a process in which the uh, foundations of the, in a way, faulty uh, working assumptions are challenged and a process in which it is possible to have the creativity to, you know, rebuild this, but we cannot guarantee which way it's going to be rebuilt or how or in what form. Exactly. And, you know, I think I've I've used the... uh, uh, the image or the parallel between the expert therapist and the novice therapist as similar to the expert skier and the novice skier. And if you put both of them on the uh, top of a very difficult ski run, a double black diamond run or something, and you ask the novice, how are you going to get down the mountain? The novice will say, uh, I'm going to avoid that snow over here, and I'm going to be careful about that mogul over here, and I'm going to try to go to that little flat space over there, and so on. And then you ask the expert, how are you going to get down the, this run? And that person will say, beats me, see you at the bottom. And then when that they're at the bottom, they can reconstruct what they did. But the advantage that the expert has is, you know, he or she has a lot of experience, and they carry, in effect, this pack on their back that is full of the the experience that they've had in the field and the various kinds of tools that they have in their bag. And then they have tremendous intentionality of focusing on the goal, and the goal is to get to the bottom of the mountain. Whereas the novice is kind of painting by numbers. Right, right. So in a way, another way to put it is that the uh, expert has the experience to be able to be in process during the, uh, the, the going down the slope, whereas the uh, novice, in a way, is so intimidated by it that they have to go in a strategic way and try to plan as opposed to working moment by moment with what happens. Exactly. And I, and I think that's a very automatic way and a, you know, a way in which everybody learns, or many people, most people learn in some way, uh, interestingly, more adults than children. Children seem to often learn by just, uh, you know, they don't re- learn how to ride a bike by doing going through the steps. They sort mm-hmm. of focus mm-hmm. up the goal and they ride the bike. But most adults, when they learn skills, you learn it by painting the numbers, and then you get better at it, and then you feel more like you can go off base, and you don't have to follow the manual quite the way you follow the manual. Uh, and it becomes as much art as science at some point. The same way as, say, an artist, a musician, you know, learns painstakingly, scales, plays scales, rehearses, learns a piece, and at some point is able to play it with spirit. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, 
so I guess, uh, you, you know, what I would say from this is that, that, uh, I think that there are some kinds of therapy interventions that sort of fall naturally from thinking about, uh, the importance of meaning making here. And, uh, that are, that are interventions that uh, transcend any kind of particular orientation. Uh, and I sort of would offer them, you know, if I, when I do, uh, uh, either training of, uh, newer therapists and so on, I would say that there are certain things that you can consider that I think will help you make a, become a more powerful therapist in this way. Uh, and they would include things like, uh, Frequently asking people what they want, that's a good thing to do because it keeps them goal-focused. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think learning to separate uh, meanings from attributed meanings, or our attributed meanings from facts, if you will, uh, the reality from the attributions. And one of the ways in which I encourage people to do that is that sometimes I don't understand what a client is saying until I have like a uh, a video picture and it doesn't have to be a real video but I'd like it described in enough detail so I have a picture of it and you know an example would be the mother who comes in and complains that her kid has tantrums well I don't know if by tantrum she means he occasionally disagrees with her where he literally is tearing the house apart. Right. And so if I get kind of the video sense of what that's like, then I have a much better idea of what I'm dealing with. Uh, I think various forms of the so what question are good. And by that I mean not necessarily the uh, straightforward so what, but it is the person who says... Uh, you know, I, I, I can't do that because, uh, my roommate wouldn't like it. Well, my, what I'm thinking is, so what? Mm-hmm. Tell me more about your model where you can't have a roommate not disagreeing with you. You know, I mean, that's essentially what I'm getting yeah, at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think the other one is, and I think this is a really important one is, I think that the more therapists can become conscious of their own assumptions and presuppositions that if they were to entertain letting them go, would give their clients more power. Uh, you know, and it, it, you know, here would be a, a common example. Uh, there's a lot of literature that shows that people who have been, uh, sexually abused, let's say, uh, have a more difficult time with forming uh, adult romantic sexual relationships in a healthy way. But it's not a perfect correlation. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people have been sexually abused who seem to do pretty darn well with their adult relationships. Right. right. And so in a way, we see a stereotype instead of seeing the person. That's right. Yeah, because there's such social convention between for that particular story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you experiment with letting go with that a bit, you give the client a lot more room 
Uh, not to not to mention that there is something a little crazy about uh, telling the client, in a way, that we're engaged in the enterprise of helping the client free themselves from, uh, in a way, a dogmatic structure that's not adapted. So, you know, the very least we could do is to be in a place of not being so attached to our own structures. Yes. But it, it's very hard to do that. I mean, we're stuck in the same system. And a, a really good example is... Uh, how much time therapy should take. Yep. You know, there are difficult problems and they should take a long time or we expect them to. There are easy problems we expect them to be brief therapy. Uh, but the fact is that time is uh, not, is a uh, kind of a Newtonian way of looking at things, the way we think of linear time. But it's not a very good model for time for thinking about how you change meaning attributions. Uh, you know, if I say to you, how long does it take you to fall in love? Or how long does it take you to change your mind? It, 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 the metric doesn't fit the issue. I mean, not, not to mention the examples of this is the instant change that took a lifetime to, to happen or that took 25 years to happen. And so both can be true, that something happens within a fraction of a second, but also that there is all of this other stuff that made it possible. Exactly, exactly. Um. But so maybe let's go into the part of what is the experience in a way as we're human beings and we're just like everybody else, we're going to have the sense of either not seeing our own, um, you know, blind spots uh, or uh, they're, they're having that attachment to, to our own theories, our own prejudices, our own biases, which, you know, we don't think of as biases, but think as very legitimate and empowering. But yes. so, in a way, you know, how do we deal with uh, letting go of that and having that flexibility? Yeah. No, that's a very good question. I mean, I don't have an easy answer for that. I think it's uh, one of the reasons it's good for therapists to uh, uh, persist in uh, not only their own therapy, but uh, exposing themselves to uh, uh, different uh, contexts and multicultural experiences, for example. I think that we are becoming a little more sensitive to the contextual nature of reality through different uh, cultural experiences and developmental mm -hmm. experiences. I think exposure of that sort helps a lot. Uh, I mean, the, I think, the, the other part for me that I would add is a sense of compassionate wisdom of noting my own yeah. limitations. And, yeah. and in a way, uh, when, in a way, seeing, you know, it's very easy from my place to see this person on the other side, you know, who's not wanting to change and so on, but then to have the reminder of how, uh, you know, at this moment it seems very easy for me to fix that person, but to be aware of how much in so many circumstances... Uh, I have trouble shifting, changing, uh, letting go, uh, seeing things in a different perspective, and in a way forming an alliance with the client from that place of difficulty being flexible and wanting to change. Well, exactly. And, you know, it's those times I uh, step out of and need to step out of the expert role and want to put myself more as the learner, if you will, the person who is curious. I mean, I think curiosity is a wonderful therapist trait or any a trait for anybody and really wanting to understand more fully 
how the person has come to the position of thinking and believing and creating the reality that they uh, use to uh, run their lives and uh, sort of being empathic to to the uh, necessity, if you will, that went into that, the wisdom at the time that went into creating that, uh, because most of those things, no matter how uh, self-destructive, were survival mechanisms at some point. So, so in a way, uh, I want to change a little bit what you're saying to see if, it, but see if it's what you know corresponds to what you mean. That in a way, if as a therapist, I am in a place of, in a way, starting to feel impatient by the client not wanting to change, then I take instead of, in a way, acting on that, it's a signal to me that actually I don't get it and I haven't done my job. Because my job, it's not that the client changes, but my job is to understand what it is that is the client's vision, the client's model that prevents them from changing. And so uh, my impatience is not a sign that I'm smarter and I get it, but it's actually that I'm not smart and I'm not able to to get that model in order to understand the stuckness of the client. Yeah, no, you're right. It's it's the strong commitment, you know, with with the model that they have created, that becomes, you know, quite seems quite impenetrable. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I think that some therapists are better than others for dealing with those kinds of impenetrable or you know what we call resistance sometimes models. But oftentimes it has to do with quote going with the resistance rather than trying to fight it head on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, which really comes with giving the person a lot of space and a lot of appreciation, a lot of empathy, and having them, uh, uh, yeah, rather than trying to get them to change something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so from this place, I want to circle back to, in a way, where we started, in that view, the constructivist view of reality, truth. You know, it's not something that there is a truth. It's something that we construct, that the client constructs, that we're helping. So how can we, in a way, circle back to that to find a way to, uh, uh, you know, to to encapsulate what we've been talking about? Wow. Uh, that's, that's hard to uh, let's see how to encapsulate that. Uh, well, I don't, you know, from that perspective, I don't think that therapy changes anything. Uh, certainly not anything in the way that we were discussing as uh, a uh, reality out there. Uh, it's, uh, and I think that that's important to appreciate. I mean, uh, I play tennis, and sometimes I'll say to myself, I've got to change my serve. But it's an interesting linguistic uh, comment because it sort of implies that there is some serve out there in the universe that I'm going to modify and fix, you know. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think what I'm really saying is one day I serve one way and the diff- next day I serve another way uh, rather than changing the, the serve. So I think that if we can get out of the mindset of having to change anything, uh, that that even that uh, well, helps. So so maybe let's use the you know I think there's a beauty in the experience of the the example you use of the serve. Yeah. Uh, because the the everyday language thing is uh, it's expressed in terms of I'm going to change my serve. 
but actually uh, the practice of ever being able to accomplish any progress there is going to be the intentionality to be more mindfully observing the serve, um, to pay attention to what other people are doing, either in, in, in what we directly observe or reading about it or asking people. But in a way, that kind of dialogue between observing what we do, getting inspiration from other sources, experimenting, uh, so that, you know, in a way, we enrich the process, uh, as opposed to having a mechanical process of going from A to B, which is what the linguistic image of changing my serve would seem to imply. Yes. Yeah, I, you know, I think you put a, uh, an eloquent, uh, Coda or uh, synopsis of that uh, better than I could have done. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, it was really nice because when you used that example, it felt it, it spoke to me. Great. Yeah. Well, so is this a good place to end, or do you want to add something to? Uh, no, I think this is fine to end. I'm sure that afterwards I'll, uh, you know, I'll have lots of thoughts about things <laughs> that I could have said, but it, it feels to me, does it feel like it, uh, we, yeah, we, yeah. I, th- I think that to me what's interesting is in a way, uh, we started with that idea of, um, you know, um, in a way certainties. Truth, good, bad, uh, story, you know, what is real. Yeah. Uh, we went into that whole concept of stories and confusing the stories for reality. And, uh, from there, we went into, in a way, something that's a process. Uh, and, and in a way, with that story of the, uh, of the serve, uh, it comes into an idea that there is an engagement, uh, from both the therapist and the client. Uh, to go into a co-constructed creative process to, in a way, uh, explore, make sense, enrich, play, uh, yes. you know, in a way, get out of whatever might be rigid, but come back to something that's more creative and open. Yes. Uh, and, 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 and therefore grow. You know, I found, I thought of one more example I could yep. give that it touches on this, and it has to do with how the how the quote problem that is chosen in therapy to work with, and because I liked what you were saying about how to think about what you're doing in that creative enriching way, and I think what sometimes happens with therapists is that they will define the problem as something that's very entrenched, and I, I think of uh, there's a story about uh, Jay Haley, who uh, you know long term. Uh, provocative therapist and writer and so on in the field. And he's talking about when he had a, uh, he was doing supervision with a student in therapy. And the student came to him uh, for supervision hour and uh, Haley said, well, what's the problem? And the, the, uh, his supervisor said, well, the problem is this symbiotic relationship between this mother and her daughter. And Haley says, oh, I'd never let that be the problem. <laughs> and the reason being that symbiosis, you know, it just, why do you want to tackle something that feels so messy, so rigidified? Uh, frame it another way. Pick another problem. Don't call it that. 
call it something else. And I think that that's really important to to understand the power of uh, both language and then how language translates into how we create and, uh, and understand our, our uh, ourselves in, in the world. And the more you can think about it in ways that offers a little bit of movement and flexibility and playing, as you were saying, uh, the uh, the better the outcomes have to be, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, in a way, uh, if what you do is you define the issue in terms of a wall that the only thing you can do is bang your head against, basically yeah. what's going to happen is you're going to bang your head against the wall. And right. and and uh, the point about it is the only way there's going to be change is if there is some movement. So basically the point is to try and find an entry point in which there is the possibility of movement and play. Yeah, that's, um, yeah. that's it. Great. Well, thanks, Joe. This recording is part of the podcast at relationalimplicit.com. In, in the world. And the more you can think about it in ways that offers a little bit of movement and flexibility and playing, as you were saying, uh, the uh, the better the outcomes have to be, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, so in a way, uh, if what you do is you define the issue in terms of a wall, that the only thing you can do is bang your heads against, basically yeah. what's going to happen is you're going to bang your head against the wall. And, right. and, and, uh, the point about it is the only way there's going to be change is if there is some movement. So basically the point is to try and find an entry point in which there is the possibility of movement and play. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, that's it. Great. Well, thanks, Joe. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website, relationalimplicit.com.